I'm Kyle Rode, and this is the Rebel HR Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Rebel HR is a podcast for HR professionals who are ready to make some disruption in the world of work. Follow us online on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, rebelhumanresources.com, or follow me on Twitter at Rebel HR Guy. Listeners, I am really excited to introduce you to Gil Cohen. Gil has a passion for helping companies design employee experiences that improve both the outcomes of the organization and the lives of its employees. Over his two-decade career, Gil has worked with leadership teams from numerous industries to help them improve the experiences they create. Uh, I got uh, connected to Gil on LinkedIn, and the the post that I would strongly encourage anybody to check out is his LinkedIn, Gil Z. Cohen. And it's, it's a post about HR outliers really spoke to me. Gil, why don't you just give us a, a little bit of an introduction about yourself and maybe if, if you can kind of talk about what you mean by HR outliers, because I think that fits our, our Rebel HR listeners. <laughs> Absolutely. So first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, a little bit about myself. For most of my career, I've been a consultant in the strategy, HR, talent management type space, helping companies write vision and values, create new performance management plans, behavioral competencies, interviewing a whole variety of things. Uh, And then in 2017, I found a new passion for the perspective of employee experience, which added a nuance for me and added a change for me from traditional management, traditional HR that made it really exciting. Uh, which made it about really what the person is going through, not just what the organization is trying to accomplish. For then, for two years, I got to apply my trade internally as a director of employee experience at a company here in Toronto, uh, helping everything from you know creating onboarding programs, structure, strategy, just anything internal and related to people. I was involved with it. Uh, then I started uh, my own company at the beginning of this year as a consultant uh, around employee experience, employee experience design, which is around being intentional about the employee experience. And as for the HR outliers post, it's really funny because. I've only been a LinkedIn content creator now since the beginning of the year, but one of the things I've learned is you never know what's going to hit. You know, I, I did not put out that post thinking to myself it would have five times the engagement of any other post I've ever had. But clearly, I touched a nerve on it. And the nerve that I touched, I believe, is this, is that traditional HR was put in a frame that came from the old personnel department about compliance, about, you know, being being the bad guy a lot of times. Typically, HR for a lot of organizations, for a lot of people is seen as hiding in their office, only coming out to tell us bad things. But then over my career, I've gotten to work with a lot of people who don't meet that, who don't fit that mold, who do things that add strategic value. And I'll tell you, I actually, even though I don't consider myself an HR person, never really been in HR per se, but this was something that I, feedback I received when I started, that everyone's like, oh, it's just HR with another brand. And then after a while, once they got to know my practice, they're like, oh, you're not like any other HR person I've ever met. 
in, 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 in the way they said it was a huge compliment. And that's how I start off that post by talking about if you're an HR person who's ever received that compliment, you're not like other HR people, which is, which is, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate thing because it's kind of sad that that's a compliment. Because the reality is that demonstrates the brand that HR has for most people. For most people, they think of HR as purely on the company's side and not helpful and will stab you in the back at a moment's notice. And I'm not saying I agree with that notion of HR, but that is for very many people, the brand of HR. And so, unfortunately, when that's the standard, when that's the middle of the uh, the bell curve, well, it takes outliers to do something different. It takes people who are finding different ways, incorporating sales techniques, incorporating ma- marketing techniques, data techniques, operations, uh, agile methodologies, different ways. And there's a lot of different ways you can be an HR outlier, but by not being the norm. And the thing that I loved about that post, what really kind of hit me about that post is the number of people who it seemed to really impact. The number of people who it resonated with, with, like, I'm not alone. This this (laughs) isn't just me. There are other people who do this, which shows that there are a lot of HR outliers out there who are feeling alone, who are feeling this pressure of when I talk to other HR HR people, they can't relate to the work I'm doing. And I can't relate to the work they're doing because I don't see it as strategic and valuable. And they don't see my work as really being HR. That's been the best part for me is connecting with people who previously felt alone. And then they got to connect with all these people that I've either tagged in the post or have people have tagged each other in the post, which I've loved it. It's been a lot of uh, it's been it's been really interesting to see that post over time. That was my exact reaction when I read the post was I'm not the only one. (laughs) (laughs) He was so excited. When he read that post, I can't even tell you. <laughs> that makes me that makes me feel great because, you know, like I said, it wasn't intentional. I didn't realize the nerve I was touching. But clearly there is a nerve there there. And the reality is, is that there's strength in numbers, too, that if HR outliers, if people who are doing different things can work together and understand how each other is adding value. When you have a leadership team that actually understands the value that the HR person is bringing, it's not the norm. It is definitely an HR outlier, but it's possible. And and, and the thing about it also is, is that's the other side, right? So there's the one side of bringing the HR outliers together, but then there's the other side of showing HR people there's a better way. You, you don't have to be excited because you saved the company money on a new benefits package. That doesn't need to be what the thing that excited you and the big value that you added for the year. There are a lot of other human ways where you can demonstrate value to the organization. And, you know, one of the problems I've, in, I've dealt with HR people for years is they're always fighting for that quote unquote seat at the table. Well, <laughs> when you show your value, you earn the seat at the table. When they understand why you, they want to have you at the table, they'll bring you there. But if they see you as just a typical HR person who isn't bringing that value, at best they'll bring you in, as somebody described it, they bring you to the executive team, but you're really kind of under the table. 
you're not you're not quite uh, at the table. It's it, it's not quite even equal when you're not actually bringing that value demonstrably. I honestly, I kind of hate that term, seat at the table. Oh, I'm um, with you. I, I, yeah, I don't I just disagree like, with you on that. <laughs> just, yeah, I, I and I agree 100. percent It's the if you're adding value, true strategic value, and you are a, a true business partner. Uh, that's that's really where you uh, where you, you quote earn the seat. My whole career has been it's been interesting because I started with a company that was very progressive, and it was like HR was was the people like carried the flag for the culture and. And it was the, you know, you were expected to be driving that forward. And then I and then I went to a, a, a different organization in the world of manufacturing. And when I was walking the manufacturing floor, people were looking at me sideways and wondering, what is the, who's, what, oh, who's he here to fire? You know, just a totally different culture. And so it was a little bit of culture shock for me. And so for the last 10 years or so, I've been trying to buck the trend. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so what's the problem with the verbiage seat at the table? I don't like it. I feel like it's implying that you have to be in a at the table in order to make change or that you have to like beg to to be able to sit there and get respect. Like for me it's like the change doesn't happen at the table. It happens from the bottom up and it happens in the cultural change that you make and then and then people are People automatically should be asking for your advice. It doesn't matter. I, for me, I, I just don't like the term. I feel like it implies that there is a, there's a barrier to, for change. That's my yeah. perspective. What, what do you think about that, Gil? Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, th- there's change that happens everywhere, and I think having that people perspective at the table, quote unquote, I think is something that's valuable. I uh, the thing I often talk about is that at Amazon, it said that at important meetings, they have an empty uh, chair at the table and that empty chair represents the customer. And for a lot of organizations, I would argue that leadership decisions need that empty chair of representing the people because it's not always the CHRO or the chief people officer who's adequate at representing that because they are in their traditional norms and back thinking about compliance and all of those unfortunate things. But at least the idea of having that representation of what will be the impact on people in the actual impact on people. You know, you can take, for example, through COVID, people have had to go back to the office. And a lot of leaders think to themselves around, well, what's the impact on the business? How do we create a clean space? But unfortunately, they're not considering the experience of what's the anxiety people feel? What's the journey that people go through in their lead up to going back to the office? What's the first day like? What's the first week like? What are people's reactions to that? And by actually managing that experience and managing that journey, you'll have people who aren't going to be burnt out from the stress and anxiety of going back to somewhere they're scared of. I, I spoke to a friend of mine in uh, in Utah and her partner had gone back to work. Tuesday night, the managers called them up and said, OK, tomorrow you're coming in. And then for the first half hour, everybody was happy and it was a great reunion. And by 930, everyone wanted to go home. And then and then within two weeks later, because of the change in cases, they went back to working remotely again anyway. 
So you can imagine what the ups and downs that that those people went through that the traditional organization doesn't think about. Traditional HR doesn't necessarily think about, okay, what is this journey? How do we manage this journey and their expectations? And that's something that I've found a lot of value in and I've seen a lot of other leaders find value in over the years is really that human-centric approach. So that, that answer your question, Molly? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, I just more thought of it as a metaphor. But yeah, the, you guys totally changed my perspective. So. One of my favorite metaphors and coming from one of my favorite HR outliers, rebel HR people is Elisa Garn, who's also actually from uh, Salt Lake City. She wrote an article a few months back for Forbes about different um, different paradigms of HR, different views of HR as you grow in your career. And she talks, so she uses the city as a metaphor and talks about how traditionally HR, you start out as the traffic cop. And then over time, you become the city planner. And then the ideal is then at the height of your career, you become more like the mayor. I would, I would definitely recommend checking out that article. I would rec definitely recommend reading what she has to say on that. Because first of all, I love the approach that she has on it. And it talks about, you know, what HR is seen as what it can be. And going back to that seat at the table conversation, unfortunately, what I've seen a lot of times is that when HR finally gets that seat at the table, they go back to being seen as the rest of the leadership team as the traffic cop. Instead of being seen as the mayor or the city planner that they're seen to the rest of the organization, the leadership the team then now sees HR as the traffic cop among them, which is not a good productive partnership and not a good way to really drive the uh, value. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So going back to your post about, you know, some signs that you might be an HR outlier. Um, I love that. But I also think just as many people that that resonated with and like, oh, yes, that's me. There's probably just as many, if not more, that were thinking, oh, my gosh, that's not me. Um, I yes. am not these things. I mean, what advice or how do those people make progress to become more of that outlier? My biggest piece of advice for HR people who want to learn more and how to become an, out, an outlier, my suggestion would be that they start to talk and learn from the rest of the organization. Find people from different groups, find a person or two from sales, find, find a person or two from marketing, find a person, you know, ideal, even a mentor from the, the leadership team and find out how they make decisions, how they drive value. Because one of the things that's been interesting around business over the last 20, 30 years is the way that both finance and marketing have demonstrated their value to the leadership team. And they were not viewed in the same way. Uh, it wasn't viewed that a CMO would be a path to a CEO 20, 30 years ago, whereas now it's a lot more common because of the prestige and value that that department has gained through data, through strategy, through just good learning. <laughs> and that's what I would say to an HR person who's uncertain Find out what other groups within the organization. And you know what the reality is, is every organization has a different culture, a different way of being. So in some 
companies, marketing is the stars. Some companies, sales is the stars. Some companies, operations is the stars. Find the people who are driving value within your organization and dig deep into understanding how they do it, how they ensure that what they're doing aligns with what leadership is looking for in the direction the company is going. I used to make a point to have lunch with all of the different departments and just tell me about what you do. Tell me your pain points. Tell me your struggles. Um, and I learned so much through that. And I think one thing I've, I've heard from you and I've also seen on your website is just be intentional about it. And I think that's perfect. So you've hit one, my, that's one of my favorite words is intentional. I just want to back up and just say that that behavior is an HR outlier behavior. That's the reality is just by going out there and talking to people. You know, like Kyle said, when he was, when he was walking the floor, people are looking at him sideways because in a lot of organizations, just seeing HR walking the floor sets people at, at unease, right? The fact that why is HR walking around? But then you were able to create that relationship with people that it's not, oh, no, why is Molly here? It's, oh, it's Molly. OK, let's chat. Let's, you know, we have lunch with her. We talk with her that it's a comfortable conversation because they know you're trying to understand. Whereas I don't I can't count how many HR people I've spoken to, unfortunately, that have no idea what the business does no idea who the people what their people who their partners with do they don't understand how things actually work they're so focused on the hr side of things but thank you for bringing up intent because this for me it's really what it's all about it is really for in terms of employee experience because if you're not intentional employee experience is happening anyway and it's not going to create the outcomes necessarily that you're looking for. You know, and the example I always use in terms of intentionality, in terms of outcomes, is silos. I've never met a leader that wanted to scale their company in a way that people didn't talk to each other or actively worked against each other. Yet something happened in the an unintentional design of the organization that here you are 50, 100, 200 people later, and now you have silos, and now you have fiefdoms where people won't work, won't work well together. If you're intentional about how you design things, if you're intentional about how you create the experience, how you reward people, you'll end up with a situation where people are working towards a common goal, not against each other's goal. I love that. Employee experience is happening anyway. In the context of that and employee experience, where do you think the ownership on the employee experience lies? Who who really owns that? Who needs to take that intentionality and and spread that into their employees' experience? Ultimately, it's the CEO. Ultimately, the CEO makes decisions that impact everybody's employee experience with almost every decision they make. And they need somebody who can manage that and somebody at the leadership team. And in the ideal situation, and it's not exactly common, but in the ideal situation, there would be a chief experience officer whose domain would be both the employee and the customer experience because they're they're intrinsically linked. So that would be the ideal. But the CEO needs to understand in their decision making that while they can't manage 
you know, all of the employee experience. They can't create the journeys. They can't do all of those things. They need to be, again, there's the word intentional about the outcomes of the decisions they make. Because going back to the example about going back to work from COVID, if the leader's priorities, if the CEO's priorities are have everybody in the office, then they're going to make decisions that unintentionally negatively impact people. But if their focus is on, okay, what's the employee experience that we need to create through these times that will create the best customer experience? It doesn't need to include being in the office. Or if it does need to be include being in the office, then how do we bring people back in a way that respects them? How do we re-onboard people in this new way of behaving? Because we can't come back to the office and have the same behaviors we had before. And if you don't tell people and you aren't clear people about what the behaviors need to be, well, they'll just fall back on whatever behaviors they want. So some people are going to be right up in your face and some people are going to be, you know, not really worrying about the mask or not really worrying about cleaning. Whereas if you set that standard and that standard does need to be set with leadership at the top, then you'll create a better experience. But it starts with being intentional about what are we trying to do? Are we trying to get these widgets out the door? Or are we trying to create the best experience for our people to put as many widgets out the door in the best way possible? Yeah, that's a great point. I think one of the things as we've brought people, because we have brought people back into the office in a very slow and methodical manner. One of the things that I wasn't really prepared for was the 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 fear and the, just the general anxiety that people had. And it was one of those situations where we drafted this policy and we thought, okay, this will this checks all the boxes, right? <laughs> Typical HR behavior. Let's just check a box and <laughs> then we can call that done on the task list. But then we went out and we we had conversations and did some some pulse surveys and started talking to our employees. And what we found is, wow, there's a lot more we need to address here related to employee anxiety and communication and training and and accountability for people who don't follow uh, the procedures. So I, I think 100% spot on there. So you did the right thing in the wrong order. Yeah, absolutely. That's the reality (laughs) is because one of the things that I've come to experience when it comes to employee experience is that it's very aligned with uh, design thinking, which has a methodology of empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test, and then implement depending on, on your methodology. But it starts with that empathy. It starts with that talk to the people and try to understand what really matters to them in this return to the office. Because as you found out, it's not the same things that matter to HR. It's not the same things that matter to HR. And that's in, in that. So that is very traditional HR. But then you did go out and do the right thing and ask the questions and talk to people. And you had the empathy to find out, okay, you know what? This is uh, a stressful situation. There's fear that we hadn't thought about. Whereas a lot of leaders or a lot of HR would have done half of what you did, which was draft the policy and then implement it. (laughs) You then drafted the policy, empathized, understood what you needed to change, and then adjusted course because of that, because you made user-centric decisions. And that's one of the keys 
for employee experience is being intentional about user-centric decisions, not just output-based decisions, not just customer-based decisions, but user-centric decisions of what is the impact to our people by bringing them back to work now? What message does it send? What are some of their fears that they're having right now? Because in a lot of areas, if it's stressful going to the grocery store, if your head's on a swivel going to the grocery store about who's close to me, you know, and all of that, sitting for an eight-hour workday isn't something that sounds appealing to most people at this point, sitting in an office with other people. Now, unfortunate reality is not everybody has the privilege or luxury to be able to avoid it, but the companies that are would do well to, and the companies that can't would do well to do what you did, Kyle, which is ask the questions, understand what the uh, issues are to the people, and then frame the policy and the experience around how to best bring them back to work so that we don't create any kind of mental health issues, that we don't cause people undue stress that, look, it's COVID. We're all under more stress than normal. One way or another, we're all under more stress than normal. And so if this is something that you can help reduce their stress, it's, it's a win for everybody. Because if they're stressed, they're not being productive when they're coming, coming back to the office. They're not, they, th those are not good days of, uh, of really getting a lot of great work done, building a great customer experience. I'm worried about lingering mental health concerns and you know anxiety uh, concerns in my staff. What recommendations might you have to manage uh, that concern? Well, when it comes to mental health, it really it's this is it comes down to how the organization impacts a person's overall wellness. So one of the things I often talk about with people is how the employee experience impacts people and why it matters. And one of the main ways why it matters is it impacts our wellness in all of the different dimensions. In each of the different dimensions, we are impacted by how the organization is treating us. And so there's eight different dimensions of, uh, of human wellness. There's uh, financial, environmental, physical, social, um, occupational, intellectual, spiritual, and emotional. And the reality is, is that the organization impacts every single one of those. You know, take, for example, financial. So financial wellness isn't just about how much money you make. It's also about the structure of the money you make, how much money you make relative to how much it costs you to work at a place. Um, but it also impacts one of the biggest impacts of financial wellness is actually around job stability. So one of the reasons why mental health has been hurt over the last few months since March is that a lot of people felt more instability in their own jobs than they had before. Whereas when everything was good, everything was growing, well, you were confident that you were, as long as you wanted to have your job and you were doing well, you'd be able to stick around. Now over the uncertainty over the last six months or so, a lot of jobs have been lost and they continue to be lost. And so by ensuring that there's clarity around stability, is one example of a way that an organization can help people. Because if they know that they will keep their job, make sure people know it. If there is uncertainty, I know it's hard, but it's also by, about admitting that uncertainty. Because people don't want to hear about uncertainty through the grapevine. 
if there's something uncomfortable to say, say it. Because people would rather be treated like an adult and be told that. So that's just one example. But then through each of the dimensions of wellness, there are areas where the organization is impacting people. So talk about coming back to work around environmental wellness. Well, what is the environment that they're coming into? And it's not just about, you know, having uh, HEPA filters and it's not just about, you know, clean surfaces. But what does that do on a person's psyche? sitting for eight hours with this big plexiglass between them and the next person. What does it do for a person's psyche that every time they want to go to the washroom, they have to figure out and they have to adjust and they have to avoid and they have to make sure there's nobody else there and all of these things to feel safe. So those are just two examples of the dimensions of wellness. So I, what I would say for organizations is a little introspection of what are we doing to their wellness? What's our impact on their wellness? And while they're in, it's an interesting question because there's only so much responsibility a company has, right? I mean, we all do have a certain amount of responsibility for, our, to, for ourselves and for ourselves, but there are things that the company can do to set you up for success or not. If the company is expecting you to work 14 hours a day, when are you going to have the time to exercise to just decrease stress? Right. It, these kind of things that the organization needs to have kind of a tough conversation with itself and managers to understand what are we doing to people, actually doing to people, not just what do we think? Because if we go by, you know, the traditional HR of let's write a policy and it ticks all the boxes and now we bring them in. Well, you're you're increasing that stress. That example of of my friend from uh, Utah. Well, Everybody in that company was increased stress. And in fact, the person who I was talking to, this person, he was a manager. He ended up going back to the office uncomfortably to protect three of his team who didn't want to go back to the office. And he accepted them not going back to the office so that he took one for the team and he didn't want to make it look bad that a lot of them were gone. So he would go back to the office. What does that do to a person, right? That you have to make this kind of decision. Right. What is that? What kind of a relationship do you feel with your company that they're asking you to go somewhere that's making you so uncomfortable or they're making you so uncertain about whether or not you're keeping your job? No, I understand uncertainty exists, but being clear about that is important. Yeah, I think that's great advice, because the reality is that there's some organizations that are not sure um, what the next quarter, let alone year, is going to look like. So I, I think that is great advice. How do you how do you know if you're making progress with the employee experience? What does that look like? There are a variety of different ways. Mood is is one thing. As any good HR outlier knows, when you walk around the office, you're able to figure out the mood. When you sit in your own office, you have no idea. But when you're walking around talking to people and you're able to find the mood, uh, that's something that changes. Because when people are frustrated regularly about what's happening versus the company intentionally taking away friction points, making things better for you and knowing that the company is trying to make things better for you. Um, but then there's also the long term is the reality is that revenue, uh, turnover numbers, uh, net profit, all of these things are all tied back to employee experience. 
that when done right over time, you're doing, you're creating this employee experience that's not just about making people happy, which it is. You want people to be happy. It's not just about making people feel safe. But once they feel safe, they end up being more productive. They end up doing better work. And that's, again, going back to being intentional, is that leaders need to be intentional about their design of the experience because that's what's creating the outcomes. And so leaders need to know what are the outcomes we're looking for. You know, one example I often see is that leaders talk to their team, say, I want innovation but then are the first person to speak at the meeting. Everybody rallies behind that one idea. Nobody tells them it's a bad idea. And the idea fails, and then they ask six months later, why was there no innovation? Well, there was no innovation because you didn't create the experience to make innovation. Not that people were mad or miserable or even cognizant of it. And that's one of the things, the people who are in that experience aren't necessarily aware of what just happened. They might just all think initially, okay, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's just go with it. Not recognizing that the leader didn't set them up for the experience to actually innovate. So if you want to create innovation, if you want people to be risk takers, if you want a safe, uh, a safety culture, whatever it is, you need to do the things that inspire that. You need to be consistent with that. Otherwise, the people aren't going to behave that way just because you want them to. It doesn't work like that. I just listened to a podcast and Kyle, I think you might have actually um, gave me the gave me the link. But this company actually pays a bonus or a portion of a bonus on a failure rate of an idea, because if they're not failing, then they're not innovating. If you're only paying bonuses. Yeah. If you're only paying <laughs> bonuses off of, um, you know, success rate, people aren't going to try. You know what? It's 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 interesting because I understand where they're going for there. I do I do get what they're going for, and, de- and it also depends on how they balance that, right? Because if that's the main measure, then they're going to be pushing people in a certain direction. If that's one measure of a few different measures that they know will lead to success, I get that because one of the examples I have from earlier in my career, we were working with a uh, a company that unintentionally found themselves in a very bad situation because they were an engineering company, they were doing software engineering, and a product was about to go live for a customer. The one, there was only one software engineer who knew what to do about it. They flew them from North America to Europe, worked on it overnight, last minute saves the day. Everybody loves them. When they fly back, the boss celebrates them in front of everybody, gives them a $3,000 check. Saying, hey, thanks for saving the day. That was really great work you did. From then on, the software engineers would intentionally put something into the code that only they could fix, that they would be the hero at the last moment, and we're regularly starting to collect this $3,000 reward for coming in and swooping in and saving the day. So if you're not careful about the rewards that you're creating, if you're not truly intentional about it, and I don't want to outright dismiss that company that's rewarding failure, because if they also have other measures that balance that out, that make sure that it's you're not just going for failure, or if you only go for failure, then you're missing out on bonus, then it's not necessarily the worst thing. But I understand why it can make people think. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point. Oh, 
just mentioning the word incentive, you could if you could see this podcast right now, Molly and I, we just recoiled because incentive structure and design, we it's <laughs> always created with the best intention. The intentionality is always positive, but the results don't always turn out positive. <laughs> no, they Perfect. don't. So behavioral economics is a more modern view around economics, essentially tying psychology and economics together. And essentially what it says is that traditional economics is flawed in that it believes people are rational and it treats people as rational. Whereas behavioral economics says we are irrational, but we're predictably irrational. And so I often like traditional leadership to traditional economics versus employee experience to more of a behavioral economics of recognizing that just because you had this intent, this great, you know, uh, comp structure, this great incentive structure doesn't mean that that's actually how people are going to interpret it. It doesn't mean it's going to encourage the behaviors that you actually want to encourage. It's going to encourage whatever logical human emotions drive it to encourage, which is not what that good intent necessarily uh, wants it to be. <laughs> yeah, I purposely um, plan my vacation days for right after we roll out a new cop plan. Jay, peace them out. <laughs> <laughs> See, what is that experience for people, right? On their first day of having this new comp plan, where is Molly? <laughs> oh, okay. She's taking, she's taking her comp vacation. Understood. Yeah. People know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, you're not. No. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I want to dig into kind of from an HR perspective, um, and, and as we're talking here, we're talking about some great topics, but being an HR outlier, being intentional, um, focusing on the employee experience, it's all really hard. It's a lot easier to sit in an office and execute policies and procedures in your bubble so what steps do you see successful leaders take on a kind of on a daily basis? What kind of routines do they have? How do they get out of this mode of hitting the easy button and just doing what the organization has expected me to do for the last 40 years? I would say the biggest thing is staying connected with people. Because one of the problems is that as leaders move up, they move away from the frontline staff. Their knowledge moves away from what the frontline staff is doing. And so their decisions are no longer directly connected with the people they're with every single day. And it's been abstracted depending on how many layers you are between you and the front line. So by making sure that you keep that ear to the ground and understand what people are actually thinking, that is the first way to do it, because otherwise you're making ideas based on the narrative in your head and you're making, making ideas at best. You know, you might ask your peers, you might ask, you know, your boss for advice. But the problem is in, in one of the, the biggest frustrations when trying to implement play experience is are you familiar with the iceberg of ignorance? Yes. So the iceberg of ignorance, well, I don't agree with the numbers that that original study put out. The iceberg of ignorance is very real. One of the things one of the, that I discovered early in my consulting career, and just this was something I'd never heard of the iceberg of ignorance, but after working with a wide variety of companies in my 20s, I came to realize, I said to my boss, I'm like, 
So the most clueless person about what's actually happening in any company is the CEO. And he's like, yep, that's how it works. That's how it works. Because everybody frames what they say to their boss. Everybody gives their boss a limited view of what's actually happening. We hide mistakes, which is why that company, I'm sure, is going toward the uh, fine, uh, failure rate, right? Because they don't want people to hide mistakes. They want people to celebrate mistakes and say, hey, this is what I learned from that, um, from that mistake. Well, and what I found as well, when people aren't, when those individuals are not close or very connected, they see or maybe hear one thing and that becomes their reality, right? Like, so, oh, I saw this person do a bad thing. That means in general, they're bad. They need to go. And it's like, well, no, you only saw the tip of that iceberg. Like you need to spend more time to really dive into more of who that person is. Yeah, and, and, and what you're describing right there is the value of all of that is data in decision making. Because if you're making a decision based on one thing you see from your direct report, which is one of the problems in traditional performance management in the yearly performance reviews, but I'll, uh, that's a soapbox I won't get into. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, another to, couple hours. <laughs> yeah, but, but the thing about it is, is that if you're making decisions, and so that's a micro level of making a decision about an individual based on one thing you see. And that also is has to do with the attribution error, which is, or the fundamental attribution error, which is we think of other people's behaviors as personal as opposed to environmental uh, based. So there, that's one aspect to it. But the other aspect to it is that that's also at a macro level. So that's a decision about one individual. But then you're, when you, as you go up the organization, you're making decisions about a wide variety of individuals. You're making broader scoped uh, decisions. And by ensuring that you're getting as much data as possible about the impact of those decisions, going back to Kyle's uh, policy, right? That if he went ahead with the policy based on the data that was in his and his team's head, it would have failed probably insulted people and been a contributing factor to uh, worse mental health. But Kyle team didn't do that, thankfully. They then asked the question. They got out of the narrative in their own heads. They didn't say what worse go saying goes. They said, okay, this is our idea. Now let's sanity check it. Let's make sure it fits with what the people, how it's going, they're going to actually interpret it. And then once you did that, you were able to make adjustments and make something that was better for everybody because you had more data from which to make the decision. It is unbelievable the small amount of data that leaders make decisions within their own organizations and then don't understand wh why outcomes happen. Why are we not having innovation? And for those leaders that complain, you know, yeah, this is hard work. And yes, it is hard work. Well, it's easier to do it hard once than to do it badly twice. And that's part of the problem is they do it badly over and over again and don't understand why am I doing this badly? Well, because you don't have the data to make the right decision. You're sending people back to work without realizing that you're causing them extreme anxiety. You're incentivizing people individually, not understanding why you don't get teamwork. 
right? The, the, there's a logical sometimes flow between these incentives and, and the outcomes. But the leaders need to understand that they're the ones that create the outcome. Right. And for me, that's the punchline. And that's as I look at, at our role, sometimes for in HR, it's, it's just about speaking truth to power. And sometimes that's a difficult message to deliver uh, because the CEO is used to getting filtered messages about how wonderful the direction of the company is and uh, how happy everybody is and everything's going great. What advice do you have for some of those difficult conversations that are necessary to continuously improve the employee experience? So this is an area where I recommend people learn from sales and marketing. They learn to understand their user. Dive into truly understanding your user, and in this case, your user is the CEO. Understanding what they care about. How do they prefer their information? Do they prefer it? Would, would a presentation help? Would a phone call? Would a text? What are their business priorities? How do you tie what you're talking about and what the people are talking about to their business priorities? Because if you just talk about it, well, people will be unhappy. They're going to dismiss you because they're going to say, well, people are going to be unhappy about everything I do. Whereas if you frame it in a way that well, if you bring people back now, this is going to be the impact to them. This is going to be the impact to the customer. This is going to be the impact to profit in understanding whatever it is that that individual cares about. So really prospecting your CEO, understand your CEO. What is that person looking for? Not just from HR, because they also might have their own frames of HR. One of the reasons why HR is in a bad place isn't just because of bad HR people. It's also because a lot of CEOs just put them in a bad position. They put them in the position where they're the bad guy. They put them in the position where they can do nothing but end up firing people. Right. So you have to understand your CEO. How do they see the HR uh, frame? How do they see experience? Do they care about experience? And what are the things they care about to really be able to then also, again, learning from a salesperson? How do you then ask the CEO questions that help them understand it? Because it's not just about you telling the CEO this is what you need to do or this is the problem. But it's helping the CEO understand for themselves, oh, so if I make this decision, this is the risk I take. But if I make this decision, the, I have a different risk. And now I understand that risk, and I'm able to make a more informed decision, leading to then the next time they have that kind of decision to make, they're asking your advice. You're showing to them, hey, look, I get it. I understand what you're going through. I'm not just here to, you know, tell you how hard done by our people are. I'm here to tell you that if you make certain decisions, you'll get certain outcomes and I can help you uh, navigate that. Sometimes approach. I'm better at that than others. You know, you, you just kind of learn the hard way by, you know, going up to a senior leader and saying, you need to do this or else that <laughs> uh, generally doesn't doesn't really give them a great UX. <laughs> it doesn't give them a great UX. And unfortunately, because you're coming from HR and doing that, they are just going to be even more likely to dismiss you. And that's, that's the unfortunate reality. And that's why you have to be able to work with them to create that UX where they're going downhill. 
you're not you can't be pushing them uphill on every decision on every idea on every people practice every program you want to do it can't be an uphill climb but if you they start to understand why you're doing what you do then they're they're running right along with you downhill yeah i i've had a few few of those moments in my career where um i've been a little bit more of a dictator than i probably should have been and um learned really quickly that uh, the clout that HR actually had in the organization or didn't, <laughs> but you know, that's how, that's how we learn. We take our lumps and then we, and then we modify behavior. <laughs> it, well, but that, you know what to see, that's the thing is the willingness to take the feedback, learn from it and grow. That's how you become a better practitioner as opposed to saying to blaming the other person, which is what a lot of leaders end up doing is they create a situation, then like Molly said, they see somebody do something and they 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 call them bad for doing whatever they did, when really you're the one that created that outcome. So, you know, if you're the HR person telling them what to do and they don't listen, you're the one that created that outcome. That was your fault, Kyle. <laughs> but you learned that, you recognize that, and you grew. There's ego involved. And they don't want HR making the decision, they want to be the one making that decision. So that's why it's a great approach to help to guide them in making the decision. You're not the one making the decision for them. You're not telling them this is what you have to do, although sometimes you have to do that because life happens sometimes. More of giving them, empowering them and enabling them to make the right decision, giving them the data, again, going back to that, about having the right people data. The right people data to be able to make that decision, and that's where your value lies. So one of the one of the challenges that that I run into is is measurement. And you mentioned earlier mood. Are there quantifiable metrics that you could point to, or dashboards? What have you seen in that um, that kind of that KPI realm as it relates to employee experience? So I'll tell you, my expertise is not around like the apps or the technology or anything around that. The one thing I would say about any of that is that any KPIs or any measurements need to be customized to the organization. You can't go with, well, because this company had a IO psychologist say these are the 10 best questions. That doesn't mean they're the 10 best questions for you. The exam, it, it, because the reality is a lot of this is correlated. It's not necessary. It, it's an amalgamation of a wide range of data as opposed to a cause and effect kind of thing. You know, it's like if you looked at Gallup loves to do these kind of things and call an employee experience, although that's a little iffy. Um, but Gallup thinks they correlated this one question to employee engagement that depending on the answer to there's somebody at my work who I think is like somebody at my work who stands behind my career or supporting my career, they think that's like the one question. The problem is, is that question tells you nothing. The question tells you nothing. And so when it comes to KPIs, I know a lot of leaders like to see it, but when it comes to employee experience, the focus is more on Okay, now what do I do about it? Because that's been the problem with engagement surveys over the last 10, 15, 20 years, is they ask a lot of questions that don't provide any information on what to do about it. They just give you a, a feeling of, oh, people feel good, they don't feel good, they're, they're connected to the company. But it doesn't say, well, if you change your performance management process in this way, 
you would get this kind of change. If you would change your comp plan in this way, you would get this kind of change. It doesn't tell you, it doesn't provide you valuable data. So you need to start with what are you as a company actually looking for? Are you looking for failures? Are you looking for the number? Is that is that a KPI? Is Are you looking for people who will admit failures? Are you looking for people who Sunday at two in the afternoon aren't miserable? Because for me, that is a really key factor of employee experience. For me, that is one of my goals is to eliminate that unfortunately universal feeling that we've all we all know at some point in time, that feeling where you it's Sunday afternoon, you realize you got work for the next five days, your Sunday's ruined, and you've got that feeling in the pit of your stomach. That is a KPI on employee experience. If you have people feeling that, you are doing wrong by them and they're not at their most productive. They will not be at their most productive if they feel that way about you on Sunday. If they are that miserable about going to you on Sunday, you are not getting bright-eyed and bushy-tailed on Monday morning. <laughs> you are. Uh, you, you brought up the term, just the term engagement. <laughs> For me, it's like it's it means so many different things to so many different people. I actually feel like it's kind of a it's just a buzzword, right? Like, it what does is. it actually mean? It's, word, it's funny because I actually just had a post on buzzwords and how you know they they can mean something to people. But when I talk about engagement, I I often talk about how over the last fifteen twenty years in HR and talent management, there's been this cult of engagement. That it's that's the goal. That's the be all end all. It does it in, in ignoring the business, ignoring all the other factors in terms of productivity, ignoring it's just engagement. That is the holy grail. It, I accept that it, it's valuable, but it's not everything. It's just one of the uh, outcomes. It's a piece. Yeah. You know, one question I have or one thing that I think a lot about when I think about employee experience and I think a, a lot of employers overall kind of miss the ball is experience with spouses and their families and children. Like, how do we get um, their spouses bought into the organization, bought into their role? Because I think that will make for a happier employee. Have you ever, do you have any insight into how to also include kind of that spouse into that employee experience? It's a tough thing to collect data on. Yeah. But the reality is, is it, if you look at it because your user is the employee, thinking about it from their perspective and thinking about the impact you have, right? Because if you're calling up your employee at seven o'clock every night, and expecting them to be on a two-hour call, well, I think there's an easy extrapolation to the impact on the spouse, right? If you're expecting them to be, you know, on your computer 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. every single day and we're going to check on you or you've got to send me an email every half hour to make sure that I'm updated, and yes, that is a real example of something that's happened since COVID, then it's going to impact. Whereas one of the values of companies that are entirely remote that they provide their people is flexibility. It's one of the reasons people want flexibility is that they get to choose their time, family versus uh, versus work. Whereas mm -hmm. one of the problems in COVID for a lot of companies and a lot of people since they've been forced to work from home is that the workday is extended by two, three hours. 
So whereas a person may have had a half hour commute each way and then there was an hour of time, now they're expected to work. Oh, I know they're at the computer. I know they're home. They, they have to take the call. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've spoken to a variety of people who are frustrated with their the expectations that their manager have. Right. So uh, one of the keys, I would say, well, you can't necessarily manage that entirely. And you also can't get into spousal relationships because some spouses, they like the that when their partner works 15 hours a day and they don't have to be around them that's yeah everybody's got their own relationship i don't judge i respect it i understand it so you don't want to be in the position where you're necessarily managing that but you want to be in the position where you're setting people up to have that flexibility mm-hmm. that you're not you know if you know a person has a three-year-old and a six-year-old and in a, in a partner that works Asking them to have a phone call from 5 to 6.30 is just disrespectful. Unless it's something that must happen based on like something specific, yeah. it's, it's not fair to that person, right? And then you're putting that person in a bad position with their partner. Gil, where can our listeners find out more about you and how can they get connected to learn more about employee experience? Uh, the best place to find me is probably on LinkedIn. Search uh, for Gil Cohen. And there's only so many of us. Um, and then you can also find my website, employeeexperience.ca. You can learn a little bit more about me, but I have a lot more content, a lot of more information on uh, on LinkedIn. Yeah, I encourage that. If, if, if you enjoyed this conversation, just follow Gil. He has great comments and then he always tags something that's thought provoking. So for me, it's like my daily, like check myself to make sure I'm not reverting back to my old HR habits. <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying my posts. <laughs> a great conversation today. I sincerely appreciated uh, you taking the time and I know our listeners will thoroughly enjoy the conversation. So thank you again. Stay safe and stay well and out there in COVID land. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Molly. Thank you. All right. That does it for the Rebel HR podcast. Big thank you to our guest. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations. No one knows. Maybe.